Okay, this morning I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. And we're just going to kind of ping off of verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians 1. So Ephesians 1, and the focus of our attention will be the second half of verse 1. And then we're going to kind of drift off into a couple of other passages of Scripture this morning. So let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. If you believe this morning that you are a sinner, right, that you are imperfect and fail to keep God's law, raise your hand. Okay, all right, that's a good representation. Well, a couple of people who are ignorant of reality in our midst, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Okay, what does the Bible say? Romans 3 and verse 10 says this. It says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. It doesn't mean everybody is as bad as the other person, okay, that we've done equally bad things, broken the same commandments, but all of us, Romans 3.23 says, we sin and fall short of the glory of God. We step out of bounds. That's a, a common fact amongst humanity. Let me ask you another question this morning. How many of you believe that you are saints? Raise your hand. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, so what that means is we need to have this talk this morning, right? Because some of you are like, okay. I am, and now I'm not because I just was proud when I put my hand up, and now I'm a sinner or something. Right? But we struggle with this. What does it mean to be in Christ? And what does it mean when the Bible, I think some 72 times, or 62 times, depending on the translation you're looking at, calls Christians saints? And, and here's the thing, if you search through the scriptures and try to find verses that call Christians sinners, you're going to struggle. There are a couple of cases where you can find verses where an individual, particularly the Apostle Paul, seems to be calling himself a sinner after his conversion, but he seems to be kind of looking back to what he was before he became a Christian, came in Christ and became a saint. So as Christians, God has given us a powerful, a brand new identity. But for many of us, there is confusion about that. As you read through the New Testament, here's what you're going to find, particularly in the epistles. The vast majority of the epistles are not addressed to sinners. The New Testament epistles are fundamentally addressed to who? To saints in Christ. So listen as we look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ. Philippians 1, I'll just read this for you, verse 1. To all the saints in Christ at Philippi, along with the overseers and deacons. Okay, so you start to get this sense that Paul's understanding of believers, the way that he sees them in Jesus, is that they are saints. Now, let me ask you this question. When you hear the word saints, what comes to mind? Okay, what comes to mind? Okay, a righteous person. Okay, what else? All right, the Catholic Church, right? Because they have this group of people called the, the saints, right? Sometimes, and then probably the most common way we use the word, is we talk about someone who's been through really difficult circumstances or really difficult relationships, and we say, she's a saint. Now, what do we mean by that? What do you mean by that? Do we mean that, 
that because that individual has been through such difficulties that they're perfect. That's not really what I think we usually mean. What we usually mean is they've been through so much that only good should come to them. Right? Through their personal experiences of pain, when they stand before God, they should be accepted. Right? That's kind of what we mean. They're, they're They're a saint. Because of what they've been through, they deserve blessings from God. Sometimes when I think of saints, I think of marble statues of dead people who were highly religious and exceptional in a way that you and I, the rest of us, aren't. Right? I mean, that's probably the most common perception. They're they're religious overachievers. And it's fascinating in the Catholic Church and Catholicism. Okay, I'm not saying this to become a critic of Catholicism. This is just what's true. Saints are people who they did more good than they personally needed in order to attain a place with God. They, they were overly righteous. They were abundantly righteous. They had righteousness left over at the end of their life that they didn't need to be clothed in, so it's put in a vault, and through indulgences and penances and sacraments and various things, that grace is poured out on other people. That's the Catholic view. Exceptionally holy men and women who through extraordinary lives of virtue have already entered into heaven. They've gained access because they were so good. And so they could be called saints, the word literally meaning holy ones. The Catholic Church in the 16th century identified 10 steps by which you could become a saint. They're rare people. Here's the people we think of. These are the two names that come to my mind every time I think of saints in this perspective. I think of people like Sister Teresa, who lived in an exceptionally selfless life. I believe that's true about her. I think of someone like Billy Graham, right? You think of people that God has used in mighty and powerful ways. You think in your own sphere of influence about people who just lived above average lives. And we look at them and say, you know what? This this person was an old saint in the Lord. And what what we tend to do is we have the haves and have nots within the realm of Christianity. And I think that's biblically a wrong perspective. It's a flawed perspective. And many Christians tend to live in defeat because we have an inadequate understanding of our identity in Christ. Now, I think based on what Paul says here and the other 62 times in the New Testament, that there is something powerful in this concept of being, our being saints in Christ. And I think it, it, it means something like this. In Christ... When you are born again, cleansed from your sin, and brought into Christ, you are made new. You are made a saint. You are brought into a new realm. You are brought into a union with Christ, whereby that which belongs to Christ in terms of righteousness is credited to you or put upon you. You are made different. The word saints, literally, it's the word hagias. It just simply means a holy one, one who is set apart. In the Old Testament, it was used to describe the people of God coming out in the Exodus. Israel is a nation chosen by God, Exodus 19.6, to be holy. And we understand this as you read through the Old Testament. God gave Israel certain characteristics, laws, ceremonial laws, civil laws, moral laws. And the purpose of those laws was to mark them out, to put a, a fence around them to say, these are the true people of God. And they were called saints. 
in a different way that you and I are called saints. They were called out from amongst all other nations and made the people of God. And so God rescues them from Egypt and calls them saints, which becomes a picture of our redemption from our sinfulness and our new nature as saints in Christ. So the idea of being saints is that we have a new identity as something that we never were before. Holy ones. Why? Because all of us sin. That's our old identity. Our new identity is that we are made holy, clean, or pure through the work of Jesus. Here's a question for you. How do you become a saint? Want to be one? Well, say, well, that's a burden I don't want to live with. <laughs> okay? How do you become a saint? Here's what verse 13 of Ephesians 1 says. It says, you were also included, now listen to this phrase, in Christ. Okay, you move from one realm into another realm. You were brought into union with Jesus. When? Well, you, this happened, this inclusion in Christ, this bonding to Christ, happened when you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your, the good news of your salvation. We sang this a few minutes ago. In, 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 what was the hymn we were singing? How great they are, okay? Yeah, what did Christ do? He gladly bore my sin. Okay, and notice what this says. The gospel of our salvation is Christ gladly bore my sin. That's the good news that comes to you in Christ. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. So you heard the gospel, you came to a place of brokenness over your sin, you trusted in the good news that Christ bore your sin, and you received His righteousness. When? When you believed. And when you believed, what did He do? He moved you from being a sinner to being a saint. He changed your identity. He changed who you are. You become a saint, Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace, you have been saved, rescued from sin, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So this idea of being rescued from sin and brought into the realm of Christ, therefore being a saint or a holy one, is not the result of personal achievement. It's not the result of personal accomplishment. It is something that is not achieved. It is something that we receive. Okay, and that should be a relief for you. Because if you come here this morning and you live under a burden of sin, here's what you need to realize. You cannot achieve righteousness by getting on a treadmill and cranking out miles of righteousness. What you need to do is believe. And when you believe, His righteousness is credited to your account. You are set apart from the rest of the world. Made a unique child of God. Made a saint. And that is a glorious, glorious truth. We add nothing to our saintliness, to our righteousness, by focusing on our failure, by self-punishment, which is a lot of times what we do, self-condemnation, guilt, how could you? Thinking that what? We're cleansing ourselves. Well, no, the gospel says that Jesus Christ has bore the consequences of your sin. And on the cross, he said the payment for sin is what? It is finished. It's done. You can add nothing to it. You can only receive what Christ did for you on the cross to make you righteous and to make you a set-apart saint of God. 
That is your new identity in Christ. Now, here's the truth that to me is fascinating. We've already kind of said it, but just listen to this because you state this starkly. Every ordinary Christian, okay, every ordinary Christian, every ordinary person who has placed saving faith in Christ is a saint by that union with Christ. And so you read through the book of Ephesians. Here's what you're going to find. You're going to find statements like in him, in Jesus, and in Christ 40 plus times. You know what it's referring to? It's referring to your new position as a Christian. You get a sense that in Ephesians, Paul is obsessed with you knowing who you are in Christ so that you don't live a defeated life, but rather that you would live a victorious life in the person of the Son of God who comes to take up residence in you by the Spirit. So to be in Christ is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a saint. Now, you say, Tim, why press this? Okay, because I... 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just listen to what it says here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Most of you know the history of the church in Corinth. Okay? I, 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 let me just read you this brief description. The, the, the believers in Corinth were a difficult group of people, and that's a compliment. They were messed up and dysfunctional on almost every level. They were proud they tolerated sexual perversion. They were divided. They were getting drunk at communion. Okay? You think you have problems. <laughs> they were selfish. All right? And you could go on and on. They were a troubled church. Now, here's what's amazing. Paul writes to them not to excuse their sin because he's going to push on this a little harder. Once that Evidence of a lack of change is persistent and normal rather than occasional. It is an indication of a lack of faith in Christ. A lack of true conversion. But to this group of newer believers, a newer church, here's what he says. He says, to the church of God. And that idea literally means to the assembly of God in Corinth. To those who in the past were sanctified by Christ Jesus and called to be Holy, same word that in Ephesians 1 is translated saints. And I don't know about you, but if I was writing 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth, I don't think I would have slipped in there this subtle indication of identity in Christ. To the church in Corinth with all of their flaws and struggles. He says to them, you're saints in Christ. And here's what he's going to say. Start living like it for goodness sake. That's what he's saying. Remember who you are. You're not that old person. You're not that old life. Shed that old carcass. It died in Christ. And he has made you new. That's the strong idea that Paul is going on here. And the idea, I think, that emerges when you, when you understand this definition of saints and you realize that it's applied to people like the church in Corinth, here's what will begin to emerge in your heart. We'll begin, what will begin to emerge in your heart is, is a spirit of hope. Okay, that, that God, by the power of Christ, can really change me. He can bring lasting, permanent change into my life. If I will let him do that. And that's the kind of the hope that I, I, I want to I encourage you with this morning. Asking you this question. How do you see yourself this morning? What is more true of how you see yourself? When you look in the mirror and you simply contemplate who you are. What is more true? What do you see? Do you see a sinner? 
Or do you see a saint? Because when God looks at you in Christ, you know what he sees? He sees a saint. He sees someone who has been changed. Who has been brought into his family. Who has been given a brand new name and identity. Neil Anderson in his book, The Bondage Breaker, says this. He says, we live from our identity, not for it. We live from who we are, not to become something else. We are not identified by what we do for Christ, but by what He has done for us. And who we are is a result of our union with Him. Who you are determines how you behave and how you live. And so what do I need to do? I need to think about who I am in Christ and begin to grasp by faith that new reality. That He has changed us from the inside out. And we're to put off the old man and to put on the new man. This new person, this new identity in Christ. The danger is that if you see your primary identity as a sinner, you are likely to sin and live in defeat. God wants us to live in victory. And so this morning, as we work our way just through a couple thoughts, I want us to realize that we as Christians are not defined by past hurts, by sins, by struggles, by addictions, by losses, by things that have been done to us. That does not define us. What defines a Christian is what God has done to you in response to your faith and repentance in the work of Christ by which He has made you righteous and changed you and made you a son and daughter of God. That's the, that's the new person. That's the new identity. I want you to think about who you are. Not yet totally new, but really new. Really new. What is the experience of those that are called saints? What's their life like? Okay, first I want to look at the present experience of those who are saints. And I'm just going to give you a couple phrases. And some of these I've called together from reading it from different sources. First of all, the experience of a Christian is this. Progress, not perfection. Right? Anyone say amen to that? <laughs> That's our experience, right? There's progress, but it's not perfection. Okay, we're moving in the direction of becoming like Christ, but we're not yet like Christ, even though God calls us what? Holy ones. So, so the experience of Christian life is what? It's a progressive revelation. If it, it, it's like the blossoming of a flower. Okay, it's the, it's the coming to fullness of something that is glorious and beautiful. It's an unfolding. We have planted in our garden uh, giant sunflower seeds. Okay, and they've lived up to their name. I think these things are probably 10 or 11 feet tall. They got all the way up there, and all they have is this little bud. <laughs> to be quite honest, it was like, four, like a, about a four-inch head. I was like, what's up with that? <laughs> okay, this is supposed to be a giant sunflower. Well, guess what happened over time? What it was, what it was by identity is what it became. Folks, that's the glory of the Christian life, isn't it? God sees what you're going to be. So when I bought those seeds, guess what I looked at? I looked at the picture on the front. And I said, that's what I want. I opened up the package and guess what? I got a lie. Look at these little seeds. <laughs> I bought it because it, 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 it talked about something beautiful and glorious. But when I opened it up, I found black and white striped seeds. Well, you put them in the ground and they die. And what happens? They come to life. 
And for long, for many months, guess what? They're not what they're becoming. But they are a giant sunflower plant, aren't they? And I could show you pictures today. Some of those heads, you have three of them, okay? By the way, they're good trellises for your cucumbers, okay? I learned that this summer. Plant cucumbers beside giant sunflower plants, and they climb them, okay? It kills them, but they climb them, okay? <laughs> all right, so this little head all of a sudden becomes this absolutely glorious thing. When I look out the window, guess what? My eyes are attracted to that beauty. And folks, here's what we need to do as Christians. We need to realize that we are in Christ, but we are not yet everything that we will be. We experience progress and not perfection, which is to say what? We're not perfect. We're not sinless yet. We are saints who sin. We're not sinners. Okay, and it's just important that you understand that. We used to sing a hymn when I was a kid, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Okay, here's the way you could read paraphrase that. I am no longer a sinner. I've been saved by grace. Do you see the difference? Okay, I I am not locked in sinfulness. I am locked in righteousness by the power of God, by the work of the Spirit. Now, are we sinless? No. 1 John 1.8 makes it very clear. If we say that we are without sin, what have we done? We've deceived ourselves and we don't know the truth. We're living a lie. We're disillusioned. We're deceived. Okay? If I say, you know what? I, hey, I'm there. If you, if you wake up any morning and you're there, don't go outside. Okay? And don't talk to your mate. And don't talk to your kids. And don't answer the phone. And don't answer any text or emails. Right? Because human interaction is bound to bring out something in you that changes you. And makes you sinful. Our enjoyment is progress, not perfection. Let me say this. If someone says, I'm a Christian, but there's no desire for righteousness, there's no love of righteousness, there's no desire to repent of sin, 1 John 3, 6 makes it very clear. Okay? If someone lives in sin as the norm, as the habit, unrepentant, unbroken, unremorseful, okay, then there's a serious question as to whether or not that person is truly a saint, whether there's been true conversion. Do they love God? Do they love righteousness? Do I? Do you? Okay, it's the indication that God has done something inside. Now, what does God aim to do in this progress? God aims to transform your practical behavior in the gospel. So as you read through the epistles that are addressed to the saints, what do you find? You find in the book of Ephesians as an illustration, first three chapters talk about who you are in Christ. And then from chapter 4, verse 1 forward, what does it say? It says, walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. All right, what is it? Understand who you are in Christ. And then live a life that reflects that reality by the power of the Spirit. Okay? So I am who I am in Christ. That's the first three chapters. The last four chapters talk about practical Christian living in relationship to family, workplace, all kinds of experiences that we have. Why? That identity is to be worked out in our relationship. So the goal is progress, not perfection. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, here's what it says. This is God's will for you, even your, do you know the next word? Your sanctification. Okay, the root word of sanctify is hagias, same word for holy. Sanctified is just the verbal form of the same word. What is the will of God? That you would become more and more saintly and that you would abstain from immorality. 
Okay, that's the will of God. Progress, not perfection. So we fight against those sinful tendencies. We don't win perfectly or on, a, on an absolute basis, but we win on a regular basis. All right? So the experience of the Christian is what? We experience progress while not yet experiencing perfection, but while having perfection in who? In the person of Christ. Second experience of Christians. What about when we fall, when we fail, which 1 John 1.8 gives us this wonderful prediction that there's going to be days where you mess up. What about those days? We experience conviction, not condemnation. Okay, and there's a difference. Okay, we experience conviction, not, com- not condemnation. What is the work of the Spirit of God? The work of the Spirit of God, Jesus says, is to convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay? The work of the Spirit of God in you is to turn on the light of God's truth and to show you who you really are in the areas particularly where you're unaware of who you are. He shines the light of truth like a searchlight. He burns it in, and he starts to show you areas where you can and need to change. And as a Christian, what do you experience? You experience conviction. There's a sense in which you sense God saying to you, not this, this. Okay, now in the world, what do they talk about? They talk about the voice that sits on your, the little guy that sits on your shoulder and tells you good things, and the other guy tells you bad things. Okay? Now, what, in, in, in the spiritual realm, what is it like? Here's what you have. You have the evil one, the father of lies, who wants to sell you condemnation. And you have the Spirit of God who comes into your life when you fall short and convicts you. The aim of conviction is not to destroy you. The aim of conviction is to restore you. So 1 John 1, 9 says, following the fact that we will fall short in our lives on an occasional basis, what does it say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to continue to remake us in Christ. What does condemnation do? Condemnation breeds discouragement. It breeds a sense of failure. It breeds a sense of despair, which says, why try? There's a list that contrasts conviction and condemnation. I found this in a number of different books. Nobody credits anybody for it, so I'm not going to credit anybody for it. I just want you to know, I didn't come up with this. What's the difference between conviction and condemnation? Conviction is from God. It's a gift. Condemnation is from Satan. Conviction leads to life. Condemnation leads to despair. Conviction ends in joy. Condemnation ends in sorrow. Conviction makes us want to change. Condemnation makes us believe will never change. Wow. Conviction leads to a renewed identity in Christ. Condemnation leads to old identity in sin. Conviction brings specific awareness of sin. Condemnation brings a vague uncertainty about sin. Conviction looks to Jesus. Condemnation looks to self. Conviction is a blessing. And condemnation is what? It's a burden or a curse. Let me use the word curse. You know what Satan does? Satan lies to us all the time about who we are. He tries to convince us that we are failures so that we become people who despair and make no difference in our lives. He wants to steal your identity. All right? He's an identity thief. 
Okay, and the Spirit of God comes to do what? To convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. To point you to the fact that there is hope in Christ. That's what the work of the Spirit is doing. And what does the Holy Spirit want you to understand? He wants you to understand the verse I read at the beginning of the service, Romans 8.1. If you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. There's no need for despair. There's no need for sorrow. There's no need for brokenness. All I need to do is come to realize my sin is sin, confess it to God, and experience forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And not live under the burden that, okay, now, you know what? Since I did that, now I have to do this. I have to, I have to get down and give God 10 because I did 10 bad things. No, it's not true. It's not true. In Christ, you have condemnation or you have freedom. You have hope because 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him to become sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, here's the truth. My sin condemned Jesus Christ to death on a cross so that I would not have to be condemned. Right? That's the essence of the gospel. He stood in your place, took the judgment that you deserved, and as a result, we as Christians are defined by what Christ did on the cross, defined by his death, not by our failure. Our fundamental identity is that we have been made new with Christ. We died with him and we also what? We're raised with him to newness of life. That's the change of identity that we as believers experience. Conviction is a healthy sensitivity to the spirit which shows us our sin. So, Progress, not perfection. Conviction, not condemnation. And then this thought. We are daily empowered by God, not enslaved to sin. Okay? We are empowered to live a different life. Now, what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to bind us in the lie that we can't be free. He tries to burden us with guilt so that we stop trying. He wants us to forget that Christ has taken up residence in us. And when we live out of that new identity of Christ in us, we begin to experience true change. When we fall more deeply in love with Christ, we find sinful habits begin to be broken and fade away. They lose their strength in the power of the love of Christ. He's the father of lies. He's the accuser of the brethren who tries to bring a charge against God's elect. Now, here's just a simple statement that I wrote down. Don't expect failure and don't accept failure. Okay, after seasons of struggle, what do you, why even try? You ever had that experience? You ever just felt that way in your heart? Well, why should I even try? Good question. It's a very good question to ask. All right, and the honest response is this. If you try in the flesh, what's going to happen? Romans 8.13. If in the flesh I try to put to death the deeds of the flesh, I'll die. But there's a promise. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Meaning what? A living person will really begin to experience life at a different level. At a pure level. Because that's what happens for a saint. We, we're, we're empowered to live in victory over sin so that sin becomes not normal for us, but occasional for us. And when it's present, we go to God and we find forgiveness. We're empowered to live a different kind of life. As a result, what are we? We are people who are characterized by hope. So look at verses 18 and 19 of Ephesians 1. Here's what Paul says. 
He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So what is that saying? There is a power that moves towards us and in us and through us by the presence of the Spirit of God. He says, I want you to know that incomparably great power for everyone who trusts in Christ. That power is like the working of his strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. Which means what? In the work of the Spirit of God, God defeated your greatest fear and enemy, death. And then what does he say? Turn over to me all the other issues in your life. If I can handle death, I can handle your struggle with sin. And so what does he do? He sends the person of his spirit. And notice the the work of the Trinity in this. Father orchestrating, son coming to pay the price for our sin, to be condemned for us. Spirit coming to empower us to live out this new identity in Christ. You find the Trinity just at work. And what what does Paul want you to know? He says, I pray, I ask God that he would convince you that the power that raised Christ from the dead can change you. That you can be empowered, not enslaved. You don't have to be stuck in those old habits. You can be delivered from them by the power of God. It's why in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to his disciples who are wanting what? Acts chapter 1 verse 7. Are we now going to have the kingdom? Are we going to have power? That's what they're wanting. I mean, Lord, just unleash it, break it loose. Do good things on earth. And what does Jesus say? Not now. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait. Don't go anywhere in your own strength. Wait until you receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you and then go and be my witnesses, right? So the Spirit of God comes what? He comes to empower us to live a new kind of life. It's what Jesus alludes to in John chapter 14. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to save you and then abandon you. He says, no, I will come to you. This is fascinating. I will come to you. Have any of you seen Jesus lately? Walking around. Probably not. Have any of you experienced the power of Christ in your life? Hopefully so. Why? Jesus said, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to come to you. How does he come to us? And what does it mean that he comes to us? Here's what it means. In the context of the Trinity, we have one God in three persons. And so when the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in our lives to keep us from feeling abandoned to ourselves, what does he do? He comes with power, with conviction, with change to change us and to help us to walk in righteousness. God takes up residence in the heart of every Christian. That is an overwhelming, glorious, liberating truth that empowers us to be free from sin when we walk in the Spirit. Paul captures that later in Galatians chapter 5. He says this. He says, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. That is a powerful promise. Why? The Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead has come to take up residence in your life to shape Jesus Christ into you, to literally change your life. And for that reason, Christians become people of hope. We looked at a verse two weeks ago, Ephesians 2 and verse 6. It says that when we come to to faith in Jesus Christ, we are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. We begin to experience a new power and a new life in Christ. 
That's for us now. And so what is the, the, the thought is that we should be people of great hope because Jesus Christ has begun to do great things in us. And so in the Lord's Prayer, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, pray this. Pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, why does he say that? Because we need help in walking in righteousness, right? We can't do it in our own strength. And so what did Jesus do? In the, in the garden, what did he do? And on the mountain, what did he do? He pled with his Father for success, for victory, for righteousness, to win. And when he teaches us to pray, what does he say? Pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Empower us. And the, the idea of praying is what? Asking God for strength to live differently. That's the idea. So every saint, every believer, is empowered by God, not enslaved to sin. So the good news that we believe is good news for now. Now the last thought is this. A saint is, or a saint will be perfected and not punished. Okay? Now, I just, I want you to think about this, okay? Why are we not punished? Okay, we're not punished because the punishment that we deserve has already fallen on the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He became sin for us. He bore the wrath of God for us. And what does he do? He bears our sin away and he gives us a status as saints, as holy ones. That's our standing. That's our identity. And in that, we will not be punished because our punishment was already poured out on someone else. What's the promise? You will be perfected in Christ. Look at verse 13 of Ephesians 1. It says, You were included in him when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. What's the seal? The promised Holy Spirit. He, he, you were marked with him and you are infilled by and indwelt by him. What's the result? He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance What's our inheritance? That one day we will be like Christ and free totally from sin. We will be perfected in Him. So the Holy Spirit comes. He's the deposit. He guarantees our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. And what's happening in verse 13? God In verse 14, what is God doing? God is looking way down the road in your spiritual life. And is he, he, what is he saying? He's saying that work of the Spirit of God in your heart is the guarantee that what I started in you and you were experiencing progress in will one day be perfected by the power of the Spirit through the person of Christ. And folks, that is glorious truth. Philippians 1.6 says it this way. It says, He who has begun a good work in you will perfect it. Until the day of Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship, His masterpiece, created in Christ to do good works that God ordained ahead of time, that we would walk in them. Not that we might, that we possibly could, but that we would walk in them. If you know Christ, He aims to perfect you through progress, through conviction of sin, through the empowering of the Spirit of God, and one day, the Spirit of God that raised Him from the dead will come and take you to be with Him, and everything will change. That is the great and glorious hope of every believer. Revelation 21 talks about this hope. Would you listen to this with me? This is exciting. 
He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. Folks, this is our hope, isn't it? What is the hope of believers? That one day Christ will come. And when he comes, sin will be defeated. Our struggle will end. And perfection will come. And righteousness will rule and reign on the planet. Now the dwelling of God is with men. And how is it said? It's said with a loud voice. He will live with them. And will be with them. They will be his people. His saints. Do you get the connection from Exodus 19.6? Those that are delivered through an exodus become the people of God. They're extracted from a sinful place of bondage and slavery and they're made a new nation. That's who we are. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them and He will be their God. How did you know that Israel was the people of God in the Old Testament in the wilderness? How did you know? God was with them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. His presence was the guarantee and evidence. God Himself will be with them and be their, I love this, only God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The older things have passed away. Sin and lust and deceit and lies and anger and resentment. All those things, what? Washed away. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. You long for that day? You go through seasons in your life of sickness, of struggle, cancer, all these kinds of things. And what is, what is in the end? God says, God says, you know what? One day, behold, I am making everything new. And folks, the aim of God, the purpose of God will not be frustrated. It is secured by the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That power takes up resonance in your life so that you can live a new kind of life. That you could be a person of hope who lives, Ephesians 1.13, with the seal of the Holy Spirit, which guarantees what God has begun in my life. He's going to bring to completion. He's going to finish this. I don't have to finish this on my own. I cooperate with Him. And what happens? In walking with Him, He begins to bring us into newness of life. And we become what we already are. Saints. So think of the illustration, whatever works for you, whatever, something that is something ugly and devastated, take an old rusted out car and you have a person who is an expert in restoration. I have a friend in town, Jack Frank, that comes to our church. He takes old things that I would never touch, pays people five, ten thousand dollars for them, and he restores them. I look at them and I'm thinking, you bought that? They didn't give that to you? They didn't pay you to take that? You bought that. Why did you buy it? Because what does Jack do? Jack sees what it can be in his hands. That's his gift. You know what God does? God looks over the wreckage of humanity. And by his sovereign grace, mystery to us, he brings you into his family. He makes you his child. He changes you. He indwells you. And he guarantees one day you will be full-fledged in absolute reality. Obviously a saint. And he said, man, I so want that to be true. Okay, and for that to be true on a progressive basis, ask God, fill me with this, empower me by your spirit to be what I can't be on my own. 
Make me new in Christ. If you've never trusted Christ, folks, please understand this. Becoming a saint is not an achievement. It's not an, it's not an accomplishment. It is a gift. It is a status that God gives to people who have simply recognized, not that they're better than other people or more deserving. The world's view of saints. No, it's, it's people that have come and said, God, I have a broken heart. I'm a rebel. I'm a sinner. They experience conviction. But they understand in Christ that there is now no condemnation. And they cry out and they say, God, apply to my life the blood of Christ. Cleanse me from my sin. Make me a new man, a new woman, a new young person in Christ. And help me to be like that flower that is becoming something absolutely amazing. Realizing that in the midst of all the struggles, I am not yet what I will be. But I am not what I used to be. You see, a saint is someone who has been changed. A saint is someone who is on the way to become something glorious, a new creation in Christ. Father, I pray that you will fill us.